You are listening to The Wildlife. I'm Devin. I'm Richard. And this is The Wildlife. For those of you who don't know, which is probably most, if not all of you, my background is in wildlife biology and a lot of work as a naturalist. But back in January, I decided to go back to school to work on getting my license to teach high school science. And that's sort of how this week's question topic kind of came to be. I was in a high school classroom for a field experience when a student asked, Where does our oxygen even come from? Where does our air come from? The teacher trying to stay on topic kind of gave a quick answer and the whole thing was done. Um, But it's an interesting question. Now, you might think it sounds a little silly, but what if I told you that that answer, the one that we all grew up with, is wrong? Or at least not all the way right? It's definitely a way more interesting answer, and quite an ironic one as well. So that's what we're going to do today. We're exploring the truth about the air we breathe, and the tiny organisms we owe our very existence to. Don't hold your breath, because we're about to get started. So this is one of those times where I myself already knew some of this, the basics at least, And Richard? I did not. I was under the same common misconception. So, Richard, why don't you share where you've thought that oxygen always came from? I always was told that a majority of Earth's oxygen came from the great forest of the world, like the rainforest in the Congo and the Amazon. See, and that's your pretty standard answer. Most are going to say something along those lines and attribute the Amazon rainforest as being what keeps us all from suffocating. But before we get there, I've got another question. Richard, how much of the air that we breathe do you think is actually oxygen? Would you say majority or minority? Isn't it only like um, 20%? Yes, it's only about 20%. The majority, close to 80%, is nitrogen. And then carbon dioxide is only a little bit, around 0.4%. Partly why those ships we get in carbon dioxide make a big deal, because they don't take up that much in the first place. That voice you're hearing is... Julie Kester. She's a lecturer and researcher at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, has a PhD in biological oceanography. I called up Julie to try and get to the bottom of what's really going on here. And what she said about how the atmosphere is made up, it hasn't always been that way. No, way back in deep time, before photosynthesis evolved, it was not an oxygenic atmosphere. And so... The origin of photosynthesis is about 3.5 billion years. That's billion with a B. But that did not produce oxygen. Those are, um, the photosynthesis occurred by bacteria, like purple sulfur bacteria that we have today, and they used hydrogen. Then, about 2.5 billion years ago, oxygen photosynthesis. So, something I think is important to clarify is that plants or whatever aren't purposely trying to make oxygen, right? It's more of a happenstance thing, like a byproduct, like when smoke or exhaust from whatever work the organism is doing. Yes, it's exactly like exhaust. You could think of these cells as little cars with little motors, and these motors are just putting out exhaust in the form of oxygen. Okay, so basically... For this episode, we also spoke to Dr. Orly Levithan at the Rutgers School of Environmental and Biological Sciences. Photosynthetic organisms which is cyanobacteria, algae, trees, ferns, mosses, whatever, 
When they photosynthesize, they don't care about producing oxygen. They want to reduce carbohydrates. They want to make CO2 to carbohydrates. The fact that O2 is being uh, released is completely a byproduct. They don't care. They actually don't even want this oxygen. Yeah, the plant uses the light energy. Just a little review. Here's a sort of rundown on how photosynthesis works. Okay, the plant takes in light, which is made up of these little tiny particles called photons. And those photons pass through those little green pigmented things that are called chlorophyll. Chlorophyll. And that's where it gets exciting. Literally. Because the energy from the photon really gets those electrons inside super excited. So much so that they jump onto a protein. A special protein. Where then, it's basically taken through a process called the electron transport chain, which works to kind of suck the energy out of the electron to use for something way cooler. But where did that electron come from to begin with? Water. H2O, two hydrogen, one oxygen. They're split inside the chlorophyll to get? An electron. And when it does that, it releases hydrogen ions and oxygen in the form of gas. So you see, that electron carries tons of energy that through numerous other steps... That eventually makes energetic molecules for the cell. And those molecules, those energetic molecules, are used to help fix the carbon dioxide into glucose, into carbohydrates... Sugar. ...for the cell. And so way back at the beginning of that process, when H2O, water, is split, you get hydrogen protons, because the electron was stolen from them, and you get gaseous oxygen, which is then just released, like you say, exactly, as a byproduct. There's a lot more that goes on, but we really aren't concerned with that today, so we're just going to focus on the oxygen. Okay, that's all really cool and all, but we should get back to the source of the oxygen. Again, many people have heard the rainforest is what gives off most of it. Yeah, I know. I even had a professor once who said that if it wasn't for the rainforest, those of us that are farthest from the equator would probably suffocate because the air would be too thin, sort of like being up on a really tall mountain. But from my understanding, it's a lot more complicated than that. So I asked Julie if there was any truth to this common knowledge. No, <laughs> that is not exactly true. The rainforests account for a part of the oxygen we breathe through this process sure. of photosynthesis. And it is my understanding that, like, the Amazon itself only accounts for about 20% of the global oxygen in the atmosphere. So that leaves the whole 80%. Is that just every other plant, grasses, trees, you know? Ah, uh, you know, the rest of land plants, they account for about another 30%. But if we look at all of the global oxygen, half that actually comes from photosynthetic organisms in the ocean. Single-celled organisms called phytoplankton. Phytoplankton. Think about it like this. You think of a tree, a tree is really big, but a tree will last for a really long time and continue to photosynthesize over years. In that time, they are taking up a lot of space, and they take a long time to grow and reproduce. We don't see the phytoplankton. Sure. They are microscopic. Mm -hmm. 
but they grow super fast, and so they keep dividing. And if you measure how fast they divide and how much chlorophyll they have, you can come up with, we call them um, mass balance measurements of an element. You can come up with the amount in mass grams of how much carbon they produce. And if you look at the whole globe together, what's um, I meant oxygen, sorry, how much oxygen is sure. produced. We also do it in carbon units. Um, it equals the photosynthesis on land. So if you put all the trees north to south, all the grasslands, savannas, crops, and then all of the oceans, they have the same amount of photosynthesis occurring, the same amount of oxygen being produced. So about half the air we breathe is coming from sources in the water? Yep. So that's like every other breath. Every other breath. And just like land plants, there's a seasonality to them too. So if you think about, um, we get blooms. So in mm. the springtime, when, or when it's spring, you know, you get leaf out. You get all the green leaves coming out. That's when photosynthesis is going to take off for the year, and we're going to get a lot of it over summer. If it's deciduous trees, it drops at the end of the fall and we don't those trees aren't going to be photosynthesizing over the winter and so you have sure. similar seasonal patterns in the ocean with the phytoplankton we have typically spring and fall blooms she had me go on google and look it up emiliania huxleyi and you can see these blooms from space they're big and cloudy and they cover hundreds of square miles and the reason we can see them is because those cells are particular in that they're coccolithophores, and they produce a calcium carbonate exoskeleton. Calcium carbonate? It's really white and chalky. In fact, that's exactly what Tums are made out of, right there on the bottle. Wait, the antacid? Yep. And these are microscopic organisms? Yep. That's pretty odd. I didn't even realize that material was naturally occurring. How many plankton do you think are part of these clouds? It's pretty much impossible to say. Uh, as far as their size goes, though, tiny. <laughs> I asked Julie in a follow-up email that very question, and she said if we were to look at some cyanobacteria, there could be as much as 5 million in a teaspoon. These coccolithophores, though, uh, the ones that we just mentioned, kind of chalky, they probably range around 25,000 per teaspoon. And then diatoms, uh, those are larger and could be anywhere between uh, 1,000 to 10,000 per teaspoon. So here's my question. How are they able to bloom in such big amounts that they are visible from space? Where do they get the nutrients to do that? I mean, they have to divide and have the resources available to photosynthesize. So where is it all coming from? A lot of it is coming from the land. So we have nutrient runoff from rainforests. Think about it like this. All that rain, all that moisture, it washes dead plant material and soil, all sorts of things into the Amazon River Basin, and eventually that ends up in the ocean. And it doesn't just happen there. Moisture rising up from the oceans condenses over land and coastal regions all around the world where what happens? It rains, sending the water through all sorts of watersheds, rivers, bayous, parking lots and roads, where it washes all sorts of nutrients and pollutants back out into the ocean. 
Every stream that runs into the Mississippi all the way from Lake Itasca in Minnesota down in the Gulf of Mexico dumps in nutrients and pollutants as well to eventually find its way to the ocean. Uh, so the rainforest is more of an indirect contributor. There's a couple different nutrients we look at in particular with respect to the phytoplankton. Everybody, sure. you and I, all the plants and animals and phytoplankton require nitrogen and phosphorus. Nitrogen is used in our um, proteins that like are the building blocks units of biology, and phosphorus is really important for our DNA, our RNA that is what expresses genes. There's also a lot of nitrogen in DNA and RNA. And so those are going to come in, That's going to, that is going to be mostly runoff from the land. And when that happens, you get... A succession of organisms that are going to suck up those nutrients as fast as they can. It's boom or bust. And there are multiple types of these organisms. And so usually the first organisms that bloom out there in the phytoplankton are the diatoms. They're super good at taking up lots of nitrogen really fast. And then afterwards, you get some of the slow, more slow-growing species, like the dinoflagellates and the coccolithophores, or the ones that just use a different proportionality of nutrients. But there's another source that we can't forget, and it comes from some of the driest places on Earth. There's also what we call aeolian sources. Or dust. So you oh. get dust blowing off the deserts, the Gobi in Asia. Sahara in Africa. And that provides something different. Diatoms have another nutrient that's really important to them that also has a big land um, source to it, and that is silicon. Silica. Isn't that primarily what makes up sand? Yeah, exactly. The same stuff, silica. And they use that silica to form their little exoskeletons. Little glass shells. Wait, did she say glass? Yeah, here, quick, look up some pictures of diatom exoskeletons. Well, there you have it, folks. There are technically creatures on Earth made of glass. Like a kaleidoscopic glass menagerie. Yes, and so if you think about it, when we go to make glass for a window or a mirror, how do you make the glass? You heat it. Yeah, you heat it really (laughs) hot. But these little tiny organisms, they can make that glass, that silica, at ambient temperature, and they can actually make it at minus two down in the um, Antarctic. Isn't that just awesome? Just to put into a little bit of perspective, I'll give you another little tiny aside. The White Cliffs of Dover, those chalk cliffs in sure. England, are were made from the exoskeletons of these little phytoplankton. Specifically, those coccolithophores mentioned earlier, remember the ones that are made from the chalky calcium carbonate tum stuff? Those cliffs, the pale walls holding back the ocean, well, they're largely made up of that same calcium carbonate. Like some, pop it under a microscope and you can still see, but we call them lifts. You can still see intact lifts from the ancient fossilized organisms. So, in a sense, these organisms from long ago, when portions are dissolved into the water, 
they help to build the new bodies for new generations. And it isn't just there, many deserts used to be oceans. Oftentimes it's made from the bodies of these ancient diatoms, blowing into the seas to start anew. I suppose we should mention that these blooms aren't always a good thing. There's been a lot of hype lately about blue-green algae in the news, which isn't most of the time actually algae at all, but it's cyanobacteria. And they can get very brutal. They can be really bad for, um, for fish, for bivalves, for like invertebrates. Not a great thing. These blooms can turn lakes into what looks like a nasty, thick pea soup. And when this happens, they can release tons and tons of toxins that can kill vast amounts of fish, uh, filter feeding animals, other aquatic life, and harmful to pets, wildlife, and humans alike. Uh, it's actually listed as one of the main causes of concern for human water quality. Increased water temperatures play a partial role, but the biggest contributor is primarily agricultural runoff. Too much nitrogen-rich fertilizer and manure being really loosely and liberally applied uh, can be washed into lakes and rivers. These same types of nutrient dumps find their way into our oceans in mass quantities, continuously accumulating as more and more washes out, creating what we call dead zones. Not like the TV show, this one's a lot more sinister. The largest is the size of Florida and it's over in the Arabian Sea, while the second largest it's the size of New Jersey, and it lies in the Gulf of Mexico. What happens is a process called eutrophication. This mass amount of nutrients, probably more aptly called pollutants at this point, causes these massive algal blooms, because it's, it's food, right? It's an intense amount of food in one area. It can support a lot of life. So here's how it goes. The algae gorges on their feast. They reproduce until they cover the surface of the water, but what happens to the rest of the plants? The plants underneath it blocks light from reaching them. So they can't photosynthesize, they can't uh, create that oxygen, they can't do what they need to do. This blocks light from reaching the plants below and combined with the nutrients being all used up, everything dies. Then the decaying algae, the plant matter, they're feasted upon a second boom of bacteria, which they use all of the oxygen up until they themselves die. It pretty much just causes a chain reaction of death and suffocation until the whole area can't support life anymore. This is all reminiscent of how the dinosaurs died off with a meteor strike strong enough to fill the atmosphere with ash and it, you know, backfired, killed most of the plant life, tore down the whole food chain. You know, I'm actually really glad that you brought up that extinction because in recent years we've actually learned a lot more and we even knew five, ten years ago. And it turns out that it was a lot more complicated and it happened a lot more quickly than even that. I'm thinking season two, we do a whole episode on it. Also, new research is coming along that shows that there are other players to make it slightly more complex than just being nutrients towards the end of blooms. Just like when you get a huge crowd of people together and somebody's sneezing from a cold, you can pass right. viruses around, as you know. It turns out phytoplankton have viruses too. And so viruses were learning more about how they interact 
to help control blooms. And that part is just in recent years coming online. So something I'm not clear on, phytoplankton, are they like plants or photosynthetic bacteria? The photosynthetic organisms that you find in aquatic habitats are very often not plants. They are something else. So a typical plant, if we go all the way back to the origin of oxygenic photosynthesis, that started with cyanobacteria. So they're very old organisms, if we think about the evolution of life. And at some point, some organism came along and ate cyanobacterium. And it didn't degrade didn't digest. The cyanobacterium. It continued photosynthesizing. And wow, that organism is like, hey, free food. If I hold <laughs> on to this thing long enough, it will make me sugar. It'll make me glucose. It'll make me food. That is a process called endosymbiosis. Symbiosis, like two organisms working together or benefiting each other, is, isn't that all part of the theory that explains where mitochondria, or the powerhouse of the cell came from. Yes, except uh, this sort of symbiosis is where one eats the other before the relationship is even really started. Like if the big bad wolf ate Little Red Riding Hood's grandma and she kept baking him cookies from the inside. Sure, yeah, you could say that. It's a really long-term thing. So over time, that lineage branched out into three different lineages. Mind you, this only evolved one time. Just think about how amazing that is. Just one went on to become the green plants that we are very familiar with. One went on to become red algae. And a third are these funny little organisms called glaucophytes that hardly anybody knows about because they don't they don't have a big role, to our knowledge. <laughs> but the red algae, somebody else came along and ate them and didn't digest. And that lineage of what we call secondary endosymbiosis led to, in some way or other, potentially even more endosymbiotic events, led to what we know as the algae. Two organisms from... Different um, domains of life, hanging out, getting along, and making something new. If they worked it out, there's hope for us all. Or is there? What do you mean? Well, you mentioned those earlier. What were they? Coccolithophores? And they're made out of basically tongues which dissolve pretty easy, right? Sure. And I bet you're wondering if with climate change and ocean acidification that these organisms will pretty much dissolve and stop making oxygen. And then we're all doomed, huh? Yep, pretty much. So that is a really good question, where there is a lot of research going on. And it seems to be organism-specific. So we have these two major groups in the ocean, the diatoms and the coccolithophores. And the coccolithophores have that calcite or calcium carbonate exoskeleton. And so if we put chalk in acid, it'll dissolve. And so that's a good starting hypothesis for us to do experiments. And in some experiments, we see, yes, that the lifts on the um, 
the living organisms do look degraded and like they are being impacted by higher pH or lower pH, higher um, hydrogen concentrations in the ocean with added CO2. For sure. other organisms, you know, the, we're, we're still working it out. Um, you can see one of the uh, hypotheses is that you would see more photosynthesis because there's sure. more carbon dioxide to work with. And the hope is then that these heavy organisms like diatoms with that silica exoskeleton or cell wall, they would sink to the bottom and sequester any carbon they're carrying in their in the cells. And I okay. think we're still trying to work out a unifying set of results on that. It's a real shame that ocean pollution is as big enough of a problem already, but kids aren't being taught on a huge reason as to why it's so important. Right. I mean, both of these things are issues. I think, I think that there's just maybe not enough attention to this part of the issue. Either way, it doesn't mean we shouldn't be concerned. But this also isn't meant to be a doom and gloom ending to our story. One thing it should be, though, is taken seriously. Something that we should all be aware of as we shape our lives. Often in school, students will ask, why am I learning this? Why is this relevant? I'm not going into science, so when will I ever use this? We asked our guest to try and answer that one. Okay. I, I will admit I'm a geek. I love this stuff. But I think it's important for understanding how humans impact the earth to understand how other organisms live on earth so back before we learned to regulate our actions there were huge implications when human population spread and we threw out our trash and we let all of our agricultural nutrients our fertilizers just run into streams and oceans and we're still learning this with the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. But what happens when we do that is that we can get big toxic blooms of cyanobacteria. And that is then detrimental to us. And we can get dead zones. And that again is detrimental to us in other ways, not necessarily always from the toxins, but from our loss of financial security if we were fishermen or used sure. that area in another way. So I think on many levels, to me, it's a way to appreciate what we have and how our actions towards our surroundings, towards the earth around us, really impact that. Both It can be positive, but also in the negative, and we can learn from that and be like, oh, sure. it's important to know how the organisms actually live, what they need, what kills them, or what makes them grow excessively to our detriment sure. so that we can continue what we have. One thing that is really important for me, um, for the young audience, is to say that we get oxygen from all sorts of environment that you can never even imagine that you're getting it from. Uh, from the 
ocean and the continental shelf and the estuaries, but also from reefs and upgoing zones, you can get photosynthesis from extreme deserts and not extreme deserts and from rocks mm. and, and ice even. We have a lot of oxygen made in the polar regions that are not in great shape. Uh, and of mm-hmm. course, the rainforest, but also from the savanna and from temperate grassland and from tundra and from lakes and streams. And all of that comes together to become the oxygen we breathe. So it's not that you can say we have to save the rainforest or we have to save the ocean. I have to save this entire planet. We have one Earth and that what we're doing now makes a huge impact on the very same thing that keeps us alive. I'd say those are some pretty solid answers. Yeah, not to mention that, you know, uh, they make half of our oxygen and without them we literally wouldn't exist and the world as we know it would have never happened. So, have you thanked a diatom today? Last episode's Animal Sound of the Week was a me. Oh, hi there, Howler Monkey. We weren't really expecting you. Yeah, I know. I know. I heard your episode last week and honestly, I was a little offended and then you go talking about my home, the great rainforest of South America, all like, oh, the rainforest doesn't make all our oxygen, oh. Well, hold on, I mean, the the rainforest is still vital, don't get me wrong, it's vital to our existence, I, I get that, we didn't mean anything by- No! Look. I appreciate what you're doing and all, but I can speak for myself loudly. Did you know that I can howl so loud that I can be heard from up to three miles away? I did not. Did you know that many of us are known for our sorely disposition? I was starting to get that. Did you know that we're revered and seen as divine by the Maya? No, I did not. Well then... We're sorry, um, what, what's your name? Howie. All right, Howie, how can we make it up to you? I want to pick the new animal sound of the week. That's it? Okay, yeah, sure. All right, cool. <laughs> Here it goes. As always, send us your guesses on Facebook for a chance to win a prize. Maybe not a great prize, but a prize nonetheless. A prize, 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 prize. <laughs> Remember, if you have questions for us that you want and they need answered, you can submit your questions by sending us a Facebook message at the Wildlife Blog. Or you can click our big green button that says Ask TWL on the front page of the website. 
There are no such thing as bad or dumb questions. The whole of human knowledge came to be only after millions and millions of wrong guesses, near misses, and failures. So never, ever be afraid to ask or try to guess based on what you've observed and already know for that matter, because that's how we learn. It's the scientific process. Instructions on how to submit your questions can be found at the wildlife.blog forward slash podcast. The wildlife is listener, reader, and viewer supported and can be found on SoundCloud and iTunes. If you believe in what we're doing, you can show your support by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash the wildlife. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash the wildlife. When you become a patron, you'll gain exclusive access to content and have the opportunity to appear in our show to ask your questions or help read the credits. For sources and a more in-depth look at what we've talked about today, check out thewildlife.blog. As always, if we've made a mistake or got something wrong, please let us know with a quick message and we'll do our best to correct our error. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe to our podcast in the iTunes store and share it with your friends. A special thanks to our guest, Dr. Julie Kester and Dr. Orly Levithon, and also to our supporters, Chris Trankel and Alicia, to who we still do not know the last name of.